Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 58. I'm Kip Clark, and today with me in the studio we have a guest, Nick Rogers. Hi. And so, Nick, you wanted to talk today about leprosy in the Middle Ages. I do want to talk about leprosy in the Middle Ages. I always want to talk about (laughs) leprosy in the Middle Ages. So where would you like to begin this episode? The most useful place for our listeners is probably with kind of a shotgun approach to a background of medieval leprosy. Okay. So I think leprosy as, well, in disease more broadly, is probably one of the most potent images associated with the Middle Ages in the minds of most modern non-specialists. And after the Black Death, I think leprosy is probably the big one. So there's, I think, a very well-defined image that most people carry with them of the medieval leper as kind of the ultimate in wretchedness and physical repulsiveness and kind of an excellent symbol for the barbarity and uncompromising, unmerciful nature of medieval society, which is, I mean, I would argue, and so it probably... Any medievalist worth their salt is far more a construction of the present than an actual reflection of the past. So leprosy, what is it? Leprosy is caused by a bacteria, Mycobacterium leprae, which is closely related to the same bacteria that caused tuberculosis. One of the very difficult things in diagnosing leprosy, and this is true in some parts of the world today and all over the world until a couple of decades ago, The difficulty in diagnosing leprosy is that it can manifest itself in a number of different ways, and it often resembles other diseases. So, for example, one of the ways leprosy can manifest itself is as kind of a light respiratory problem at first, which doesn't surprise you if you take into account its relation to tuberculosis. It can also manifest in very physically deforming ways, which I think is probably what most people have in mind when they hear the word leprosy. And those kind of grotesque physical manifestations are similar to very severe cases of syphilis, especially in the Middle Ages. So one of the difficulties in writing any medical history of a disease is that diseases tend to evolve much more quickly than larger organisms. That's just basic That's science. That is what science is. And so there's some speculation that syphilis and leprosy may have resembled each other much more closely in the Middle Ages than they do today. And that's just due to changes in their own structure and how they work. So today, people still get leprosy. There are probably between one and 200 cases in the United States every year. Actually, one of our local which I mean local to America, not local to Gambier, Ohio, vectors for leprosy are actually armadillos. And this is the reason that you cannot eat armadillo meat because you can contract leprosy. But it is now treatable with, I think, a six-month course of antibiotics. So it's widely treatable throughout the world today. Left untreated, however, it's a disease that progresses very gradually. You can have it for many, many years and display no external symptoms. And then once it does start to manifest itself, typically you might see hair loss, numbness in the extremities. And over the course of years or even decades, this progresses to harshness of your voice and your breath and actual skeletal deformities. A lot of people associate leprosy with the loss of extremities, and that's because due to a lack of sensation, you tend to be less careful with them, and bad things can happen to them. They wind up falling off. That's leprosy more generally. So diagnosis back then was difficult because of the associations it had with other diseases, but what approaches were taken by medical or even religious figures to diagnose? Sure. So it's really interesting that you 
mention religious figures because for the rise of what we would identify as professionalized medicine, so people who are doctors or they call themselves physicians or surgeons, this is how they make their money, this is how they identify themselves and how society identifies them. We don't really see that in Western Europe until the very late 11th century, kind of tentatively, and certainly doesn't become well-developed until the 12th, 13th, and 14th. So prior to that, the diagnosis of leprosy would have been the purview of religious officials. And this is interesting because although I've just told you all the ways that leprosy can resemble other diseases, it was often believed to be a very self-evident thing. So it was kind of thought that, well, if somebody in our community has leprosy, the disease will present itself, the priest will recognize it, and we as a community can then take appropriate action. It's hard to know exactly what priests would have been looking out for. So I just mentioned some symptoms, and later on in the Middle Ages, doctors developed very extensive catalogs of symptoms. And if you were able to check off a certain number of them, and these were then classed into unequivocal symptoms and equivocal symptoms, if you had enough of each category, then you could proceed with the diagnosis of leprosy, which is interestingly not all that different from how the severity of concussions is gauged today. So anyway, prior to the rise of kind of medicalized healthcare, we imagine that that is how diagnoses would have been reached. Now, that being said, towards the later Middle Ages, when you start to get universities with medical schools attached to them, and you start to get people who become recognizable to ourselves as doctors, as health professionals, they devise a number of diagnostic tests. These famously include the examination of urine. That was kind of the most common practice of doctors, regardless of what it was they were dealing with, what disease they were dealing with. It was the examination of urine. And so the urine of lepers was believed to have certain problems properties that you could test for. For instance, I think if it was grainy or too pale, that was considered a possible sign of leprosy. Again, probably a diagnosis wouldn't have been reached just through that one symptom. There are some other very interesting ones that have more to do with the examination of blood. So if you bled a patient slightly and rubbed their blood between your fingers and it felt coarse, that was a possible symptom of leprosy. And some historians of medicine have posited that that may actually be due to an actual effect of leprosy on human blood. There was another process by which you would clot the blood, wrap it in linen, and wash it, and then examine what remained in the cloth. And this is kind of an interesting shift in how leprosy is perceived by society, because whereas before it was thought to be self-evident when it presented itself, the entire practice of coming up with these rigorous diagnostic procedures sort of undermines that notion of self-evidence. And it becomes something that you have to discern very carefully, which I think, and I argue in my senior thesis, really made leprosy more threatening and kind of insidious, and that it could be hidden. Another feature of medieval leprosy, probably the most widely identified, is that lepers were, and this is kind of a huge simplification with like six sets of air quotes around it, is that lepers were outcasts. That's the one thing that everybody knows or thinks that they know about medieval leprosy, medieval lepers, and how they were received by society. So the traditional narrative, if you were going to reconstruct one, would be that somebody is identified as a leper by the community. They're then kicked out of town. They are alienated from their property, and they are either consigned to a leprosarium, which is a hospital specifically for the care of lepers. Sorry to interrupt, but would male and female lepers be treated similarly? Obviously, men at this time probably had property while women were not allowed to hold property. Would they be sent to similar places even? Well, so that's interesting. There doesn't seem to be a lot of uniformity with regards to how gender figured into the way that medieval communities dealt with leprosy and managed it as a social problem or phenomenon. There are certainly, we have surviving regulations from leper hospitals that describe co-ed hospitals 
where inmates, which is how the documents refer to the lepers is as inmates, which should be divorced from all kind of modern connotations of being prisoners. But so anyway, male and female lepers might often be members of the same institution, but their interactions with one another would be strictly managed. They would probably sleep in different places and only meet during religious services, possibly during meals. Again, most of the information that we have most of the evidence that we have about what life was like for lepers in these hospitals come from regulations. And regulations as a genre can be hard to deal with as historians because they reflect an ideal set of circumstances. Obviously, the people who found these leprosary hope that these rules will be followed, but we really have no way of knowing if they were strictly observed or not. And I know that from some of the readings that I did in the book you gave me, future historians in the 19th century and around the early 20th century argued that these leprosaria were beneficial because they segregated a part of society that was genetically or in some way inferior and almost eugenically seemed to support these decisions and these actions against lepers. Do you think that people at the time viewed it as a similar means of purifying society or simply protecting against the illness of the lepers? Well, first of all, I think that the trend that you've highlighted, while very common to kind of early 20th century and probably late 19th century historiography on the subject, is interesting. It really kind of exports a lot of early modern notions about purity onto the medieval period. How medieval societies grappled with purity is a very complicated issue that starts to draw in biblical conceptions of sin and connects those with medical ideas about contagion. I think that it's overly simplistic to say that medieval societies thought that they were ensuring their own genetic purity by segregating lepers. I actually think that saying that would be ridiculous. However, that having been said, during the medieval period, there was often a concern that leprosy or other kinds of bodily misfortune or economic misfortune, whatever, could be attributable to the sinfulness of the person who suffered it. Now, that logic contradicts a number of other logics that were in play at the time, but it is one that people probably subscribe to at certain points. And I think it's one that a lot of people still subscribe to today, that your own spiritual failings have led to your material and physical suffering. But there was also concern that one sinful or unworthy individual within the community could, by proximity, pollute the community as a whole, kind of the body social as opposed to the body of the individual. So you can interpret the expulsion or the seclusion or sequestration of lepers as a way to cordon off or to excise a corrupted part of the body social. But I don't think that that is the same logic that's at play with the eugenicists of the early 20th century. Obviously, this topic was not only of interest to you, but intriguing enough to the point that you wrote a paper on it. And I'm curious to know what conclusions you reached or what issues you ran into regarding information or even how you problematized the topic itself. Sure. So I came to the topic of medieval leprosy kind of by a more securitous route. I knew that I had an interest in writing a longer senior paper going into my senior year. I was actually here on campus doing unrelated research with a faculty advisor and in my spare time exploring potential sites of inquiry for an extended thesis. And I've always been interested in conversion, religious conversion, as it's experienced by the converts. And unfortunately, in I would imagine most periods and certainly in early medieval history, this is almost an impossible topic to approach. But I thought there might be something in there. And I had originally thought that I would write a paper on how burial practices were affected by Christianization. And during this research, I was looking at collections of primary documentation in translation. And I came across an unrelated document that is the script for what's basically a funeral mass from, I want to say, 12th century France. I can't remember the exact date right now. 
So in all respects, this describes a funeral mass that you would say for a dead person that the community would bear witness to when somebody had passed away. Only in this case, instead of a dead person at the center of this ritual, you have a living person who happens to be a leper. So the leper is taken from his home and is led in a very solemn procession to the church where he sits or kneels underneath a black cloth while a funeral mass is recited to him, to the community, it's not really sure. And he is then removed from the community, kicked out. There are some records that describe a similar process being followed by the sprinkling of grave dirt over the leper's head to kind of really solidify the leper being, in a metaphorical sense, dead to the community. And I thought that was really striking. And I started to ask myself, why do lepers have to be dead in medieval society? Why can't they just be sick? Because they don't do this to epileptics. This doesn't happen to people who have the plague, although people are too busy kind of dying. Can I pose my own question then? I'm curious to know, given the finality of death, did lepers have any agency once they were put in these leprous area? Obviously, in a modern context, many psychological patients, for example, have the option to leave if they are found of stable mind and of suitable capacity to live in normal society. Could lepers leave if they wanted to? Was that even an option for them? Leaving a leprous area was an option, but it wasn't one that you would choose willingly in most cases. So expulsion is actually a commonly listed punishment for misbehavior in leprous area. That having been said, it seems to have been fairly rare for lepers to be expelled from their institutions. There is one definite instance that we know of where a leper was kicked out of a hospital. It was in southern England, and it was actually considered so unusual that the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time came to watch just to see this happen because it was relatively unheard of. And the reason for this is that life within the leprous area was probably considerably better than the life of a wandering leper. In the history of medieval illness, the most common trend that we see is that the wealthy receive treatment at home because they can afford to have medical practitioners come to them, whereas the poor have to go to some kind of charitable institution to receive care. Usually, almost always in this period, is run by churchmen. With leprosy, we actually see an interesting reversal of this trend, where because of the stigma of the disease, if you didn't have substantial wealth, you essentially stood to live the rest of your life in a state of abject poverty. So what we find instead are that poor lepers usually do not have access to charitable institutions, whereas wealthier people, kind of from the proto-middle class or above, would be able to gain entry to one of these leprous area. It was often quite expensive. As you can imagine, because it essentially guaranteed your material sustenance for the rest of your life, some people would actually pretend to be leprous to gain entry into these hospitals. So to diverge slightly, I know monasteries at this time or around this period of time in Europe were often very remote and very self-sustaining. They would make their own clothes, they would make their own food, Were leprosaria at all like that? Yes, absolutely. So I actually argue in my paper that the administrators of leprosaria made a conscious decision to emulate the monastic model, partly because this was by far the most successful model for communal living available at the time, and also because it asserted the inherent morality of this kind of communal life for lepers. So you do find in regulations descriptions of certain lepers having different jobs around the institution. Some leprosaria would also own adjacent fields, and these would be worked not often by lepers. Sometimes there would be kind of a leper overseer, usually worked by hired hands. Often lepers would make their own clothing, which resembles in its appearance the habits of monks, though they were a different color. There are so many parallels that you can draw between monasteries and leprosaria. And I'm curious to know, 
from these leprosaria, are there any journals or other pieces of evidence which were written or constructed by the lepers themselves in these lifestyles that you used as evidence or that you looked at? Unfortunately not. There are almost, with I'm going to say two exceptions that I know of, no documents produced by medieval lepers. Now, the two documents that we do have are, interestingly enough, written by two lepers who knew each other, but produced almost a decade apart. And they're both poems, or they're both lengthy works in verse. And I didn't use them in my thesis because they weren't particularly germane to what I was talking about, but I do recall their basic outline. So the gist of the latter of these two poems was that one leper, I think both of these gentlemen lived in the south of France. So the first of these lepers had gained a spot in one of the local leper hospitals and subsequently had passed away. Ten years later, another leper who knew him is arguing that he should have access to his spot because of their past relationship, because he comes from the same town, and because of the wretchedness of his own situation. He spends a long period of time talking about how he went to consult a physician, and the physician told him that he had leprosy, and how then he counted himself amongst kind of the lowest of the low. But other than that, almost all of the information that we have about lepers comes from churchmen speculating on the metaphorical meanings of leprosy from charters and regulations and from passing references in the lives of saints and documents of this type. So having talked about kind of the difficulties of finding the authentic voices of lepers in the historical record, a couple of weeks ago, I lent you a book, Leprosy in Medieval England Mm -hmm. by Carol Rockliffe, which is, I think, probably the best general history on the topic that's been written to date. And you've read chunks of it, and I was curious to hear what your impressions were, what questions the topic raises in your mind. Well, I think it was really interesting to note that leprosaria were viewed as positive locations for lepers themselves, yet at the same time, lepers were treated with incredible aversion in the societies in which they lived. And I think it was interesting to read about the legal ramifications of trying to segregate and separate lepers Mm -hmm. from other members of society. And I was thinking about the approach which I feel modern societies have taken to try and cure or address all illnesses in much more transparent or communal ways, Right. which I don't think was true given what I read, but also the religious power of the time I think was incredibly influential. I know that one member of society in England at the time felt that leprosy may have been contracted during the Crusades, which, however true or false, and I don't think it's entirely true given what you and I have discussed, that idea said by any authority figure could lead people to believe that maybe the Crusades were problematic and did, in fact, induce leprosy in some people, which, if you're not scientifically inclined, you might come to trust and believe because someone higher than you in society has told you this. And to me, that's a big issue that I feel is apparent in leprosy and how it was dealt with because it wasn't a clear disease that people understood with certainty. And as you've said, it's, of course, evolved over time. But in that uncertainty, I think there was a lot of leeway for people to hypothesize, theorize, and then indoctrinate people with certain beliefs or approaches to leprosy, which I feel, given what I've read, made it all the more daunting and ominous to society when, in fact, it was a disease that perhaps could have been treated more readily and, of course, given the leprosaria, was something that could be dealt with. Right. So it's interesting that you mentioned kind of the fear that can be inspired by leprosy, because I think one of the reasons that leprosy and lepers took on this kind of frightening aspect is that while the disease is incredibly disfiguring, it doesn't kill very quickly. You can suffer from leprosy for a long, long time. At the same time, it's contagious, but it's hardly contagious at all. So at any given moment, lepers can form a large enough segment of society to be a visible and frightening minority, 
while at the same time, leprosy itself does not appear to be an epidemic the way that the plague was, for instance. However, it's also curious that leprosy appears to have peaked around the 12th century in medieval Europe, but the greatest expressions of fear that we find with regards to leprosy are actually from much later. So even as the disease becomes less prevalent, its visibility, its social visibility becomes much higher and much more threatening to people. Do you think the rarity of leprosy as time went on made it more scary to people because they were less familiar with it? I think that's certainly a possibility. It's also important to interpret instances of what are really shockingly violent reactions to lepers. There's a very famous episode in 1321 when lepers are essentially accused of acting in collusion with the French Jewish population at the time of trying to poison the healthy people of France so that they could turn over control of the kingdom to the Caliph of Cordoba, which is, as far as conspiracy theories go, way out there. It's important not only to not take these at face value, but to understand that these accusations are in large part engendered by other tensions and other material exigencies that really might have nothing to do with leprosy. For instance, in the case of 1321, a lot of what's going on is that you have noblemen and bishops who are kind of local level powers, feeling that their authority at a local level is being challenged by the royal institution. So one way that they can reassert their power is by taking violent action against minority groups within their own kind of local orbit. So if a baron decides to imprison all of the lepers within his control, it's not just an expression of a fear of contagion, of a fear that people will become leprous. It's also an expression of his authority. He has the right to do that. He has legal recourse to violence in this context as opposed to the king. I think that part of the reason that the greatest expressions of fear of leprosy don't coincide with leprosy's greatest spread in Europe has a lot to do with the fact that these expressions often served other purposes or had other social meanings. Then, Nick, before we conclude the episode, I would ask if there are readings you would urge people to check out if they're interested in the topic. And also, as a segment of my request, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how you think people could apply these lessons to a modern society or what you've learned from this that might benefit the way you approach medical history or societal response to illness or things of that nature. Sure. As far as book recommendations go, I think that Co. Rockcliffe's Leprosy in Medieval England is a great place to start. While it is specific to England, she really offers just a huge amount of background information. I think that her historical approach is spot on. It's very readable. Beyond that, I would recommend Michael McVeigh's Medicine Before the Plague. Very interesting history of medical practice in Iberia before... 1352. And both of those have rich bibliographies to mine. Oh, David Nirenberg's Communities of Violence was, from a historiographical perspective, probably the most influential thing that I've read over the past year. And so with regards to the modern applicability of the topic, kind of what can medieval lepers tell us about our own society that's in any way useful, I think we need to not only read the history of leprosy as the history of an illness and the way that ideas and fears about illness are generated and managed, but also the history of a marginalized group. And in particular, how episodes of violence and intolerance have to be kind of apprehended at a level deeper than just the invective that's used to express them. And that we have to look for underlying structural material exigencies that make these angry and hurtful vocabularies 
powerful. I don't think that they have any inherent power on their own. So for example, there's a long, long history of associating leprosy with sin. You find this in scriptural exegesis stretching back all the way to the first and second century AD. This is a tradition that Jewish scriptural commenters partake in as well as Christians. But I think to explain the imprisonment and the burnings and the killings of lepers in southern France in 1321 as a necessary and unavoidable outcome of a discourse at that time, you know, 1300 years old is overly simplistic because for every year like 1321, where these vocabularies about sin and contamination suddenly become deadly in a literal sense, there are thousands of years for which they exist without engendering any kind of violence in which these discourses of fear seem to have relatively little power over how lepers are managed. And I think that there are certainly ample lessons to be drawn there with regards to how marginal groups are treated today. I feel similarly, and while I'm no expert and have learned an infinitesimally small amount of information about leprosy in medieval Europe, I think it's a lesson in how curiosity can be very influential and positive, and especially in the medical community if people had sat still and refused to research it further, perhaps the disease could have become something far worse, maybe even more contagious, and so I think it's a lesson in how societies treat medical illness how societies, of course, as you said, treat marginal groups. It's made me more aware of the constant danger that doctors face in trying to examine and understand patients, obviously some of whom are contagious. And I would urge listeners not only to do further research on leprosy or other topics that interest them, but to consider the ways in which we approach illness and even how that has changed over time. And of course, were you in the shoes of a leper, how you would prefer to be treated and ideal circumstances therein. And of course, Nick, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Kip. Of course, we were happy to have you and would gladly have you back. So Nick and I are only two people. We would love for this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. If you have comments, criticisms, reviews, or opinions on this topic or any others that we've discussed here at Stride and Saunter, we would love to hear them. You can reach us on Twitter or on Facebook. Our email account is strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the episode, please consider sharing it with friends and reviewing us on iTunes. And if you quote the text of your review on iTunes and email it to us, you will be entered for a chance to win a $20 Amazon gift card. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.